Well, that was good. That was really good. That, that was the message right there. So um, let's close in prayer. And uh, uh, really a huge thank you to Heidi Rush and that team. And I don't know about you, but I am so glad to be um, leading in a church where our kids from a really early age hear that, um, that they're children of the Most High God, that there's freedom in Him. Yeah, you can clap for that. That's all right. Um, so huge thank you to Heidi and that team for uh, that ministry. Hey, over the last few weeks, we have been sort of living in the parable of the prodigal son. It's found in Luke 15. If you have your Bible, you can open there as we're in our last message in this series that we've been doing. And remember, a parable literally means um, to throw alongside of. So in this parable, it's, it's Jesus taking the story of a father and his two sons, and he throws it alongside of the reality of the world that we live in and the kingdom that Jesus came to inaugurate. And we said earlier that, that a parable sort of presents a picture for us, for us to climb up inside of and explore, uh, for us to ask questions about ourselves and, and about God. It's a way for us to ask the question, are we living in the way that Jesus created us to live and designed us to live? And, and are there maybe some things that God would press on us to say, uh, you've pictured me in one way, but, but, but I'm different than you ever imagined. And over the last four weeks, we've been exploring it through the angle or the lens of, of the younger son, the son who says to his father, give me all the, my share of the inheritance, my share of your property. And, and he takes it and he goes away and he blows it all in reckless living. A few weeks ago, we talked about this, this younger son coming to his senses, having this aha moment, realizing what he's done, and, and he decides to go home. <laughs> And he's got this whole speech prepared. Um, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But if I could just be a, if I could just be a, a day laborer in your household, take me back, please. And you'll remember, if you were here last week, that the father doesn't just forgive him and, and doesn't just welcome him home, but, but he does so with uh, exuberance, with open arms and with grace abundant. And then there's the older brother. I don't know about you, but the older brother reminds me a little bit of me. Um, a few weeks ago, I had the chance to teach in, in, uh, at a church in California. And I flew in Saturday to teach Saturday night. And I decided that I'd fly home Monday because I figured I can write a sermon as easily in a coffee shop on the beach as I can in my office. And so I did that. I, uh, Monday, I got up early, I had uh, breakfast with a friend, and then I drove down to the coast and I found this cool little coffee shop. And for the first few hours in the morning, I was just working away, but I could almost hear the ocean calling me. It knows my name. And so I said, well, I'm going to I'm going to go and um, I'll walk on the beach and I'll eat lunch down there. And I went and I walked on the beach and, and I ate lunch down there. And then I thought, well, I've got my running stuff in the car and it's a beautiful day. And so I went and I got my running stuff on and I went on a long run on the beach and I got back to where I'd parked and I thought, I'm already all sweaty. I should probably go for a swim 
And so I did. And so here's the thing about me, if you don't know me all that well. I am what some people refer to as a type A personality, okay? I just call it responsible, okay? Everybody else, you can call it type A, call it whatever you want. Uh, when I have a plan, I execute my plan, okay? And um, so my plan was I'm going to study in the morning, I'm going to eat lunch, and I'm going to study in the afternoon. But the ocean was calling me. And I was already sweaty. And so I decided, I'm just going to throw my plan out the window. Is that hard for anybody else? Or is it just me? Hey, I'm just going to throw my plan out the window. The other people are like, plan, what's that? Right? And so I can remember, I was Monday night. I was flying home late. It was 8 o'clock. And I was sitting in the airport in San Diego. And I had sand in between my toes. And I thought, yeah, this feels good. And then I thought, but I, but I almost missed it. I almost, I almost missed it. I, I almost did the quote-unquote responsible thing and went back and said no to the invitation of the warm, crashing waves and just got all my work done. You know what? That, an older brother would just execute, <laughs> Just get, get it done. And I don't know if that's in you at all, but I know it's in me. And so when I read this part of the story of the prodigal, I just sense Jesus saying, hey, Paulson, this one's for you. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 24. And the father says, for this son of mine, this younger son of mine, was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field and as he came and he drew near to the house, he heard the music and the dancing and he called one of the servants and he asks what, asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you. I never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, Who's devoured your property with prostitutes? You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to his son, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother was dead, and he's alive. He was lost, and now he's found. A festival or party is a significant theme in Luke chapters 14 and 15. There's a wedding celebration that ends with a party. There's a great celebration that ends with a party. There's a shepherd who goes to look for his sheep. He finds it and he throws a party. There's a woman who loses a coin, finds it, and throws a party. This is an image that we have of what God is like. God is a party-throwing, festival-going kind of guy. The story, though, of the 
prodigals. The story of the prodigal son, it it culminates. It comes to a peak at the very end. It's like Jesus isn't following the normal story arc. He ends with a question. He he ends with a, a proposition. Remember, he's teaching to two groups of people at the same time. He's teaching the tax collectors and sinners. He's, he's teaching to the younger brothers, if you will. But also in his crowd, the, the people he wants to respond to and press on are the older brothers. It's the Pharisees. The, the people who look at him and say, Jesus, these are the people that you should be demonstrating your holiness by not being around them. What in the world are you doing? And so in this story, the story ends with dancing The story ends with a festival and with a party, and the story ends with the older brother outside. It's interesting, if you look at verse 28, you start to see the the heart of God. His son is angry, he refused to go in, but, but the father came out. It's this humiliating action of a father, because as a patriarch in this society, your kids should just do what you ask them to do. You're in charge. And he came out, and it says, well, will you read this with me, church, that he entreated him. It's, um, in the Greek, it's this word that means not condemnation and not punishment, but he's, he's pulling on his heartstrings. He's saying, well, come on. The the waves are crashing. The the sun is shining. The water's water's warm. Like, jump in. It's this affection-driven plead. I love you. Why, why you. Why are you content to be outside of the party? It's interesting that all throughout the pages of Scripture, the, author, uh, the authors that, that recount for us the oracles of God, they, they have this anthem, this drum that they beat, this like, don't miss it. Don't, don't miss his love. Don't just go right by it. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the church at Ephesus, he says, I bend my knee and I bow before God our Father and I ask him this. My prayer is that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in what? Love. That you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the height and length and, and uh, what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all of the fullness of God. As if to say that when you're filled with the fullness of his love, you're, you're free to live in his world. You're free to operate as his children. You're free to be the people that Jesus intends and designed you to be. See, here's what we find out from the younger brother and from the older. It's this, is that when we're found in love, we're, we're free to live. I had somebody say to me the other day, oh, oh, I get it, freeway. That's why this series is called Freeway. It's the, the way to be free. Now, for those of you that didn't put those dots together yet, welcome. We're glad that you're here. <laughs> Six weeks in. <laughs> Congratulations. Freeway, yeah. yeah. And we've been talking the last few weeks about what does it mean to be free. And the culmination, the, the fulcrum of freedom is life with the Father. 
You can't have it any other way. And when you have it, there's no other way to live other than free. Uh, Here's the way that I'd say it this morning, that love is the context of freedom. That when we know we're loved, the freedom that God brings into our life goes beyond our circumstances. It goes beyond our, our limitations and our fears. It grounds us in something more beautiful, something more transcendent than our own accomplishments. Love is the context of freedom. And the invitation this morning is to step into that. We, we know that this is true, that when we're found in love, we're free to live. We know this is true if we had parents that, that really showed the love of God to us. They, they freed us to live. They freed us to be able to live without the, the feeling like we're going to make a mistake and be cast out. They freed us to live by knowing that, that if, maybe better when, we fell, there would be somebody there to catch us. We know this is true in, in relationships, in a marriage, that when a marriage is grounded in love, it frees both people to say, yeah, this is who God has designed me to be. That love is the thing that causes the human heart, human soul to open up, to flourish, And to be what God intended for it to be. But we also know the opposite side of that, don't we? That that when we doubt that we're loved, we know we have to perform. When we doubt that we're loved, we get a little bit anxious, don't we? Self-conscious. We get a little bit crazy. It's, It's in us from a really early age. We were designed for love. I saw a video this summer that just stuck with me. It was this study that was done by a number of professors, but here's what they did. They they called it the still-faced mom study. And it was a mom, and you'll see it in a second, I'm going to show it to you, playing with her child and then all of a sudden going still-faced. No emotions at all. What do you think happened to that kid? Okay, don't answer that because I'm going to show you. Here's what happened. In this still face experiment, what the mother did was she sits down and she's playing with her baby who's about a year of age. I'm like a girl. And she gives a greeting to the baby. The baby gives a greeting back to her. This baby starts pointing at different places in the world and the mother's trying to engage her and play with her. They're working to coordinate their emotions, and their intentions, what they want to do in the world. And that's really what the baby is used to. And then we ask the mother to not respond to the baby. The baby very quickly picks up on this. And then she uses all of her abilities to try and get the mother back. She smiles at the mother. She points because she's used to the mother looking where she points. The baby puts both hands up in front of her and says, what's happening here? She makes that screechy sound at the mother, like, come on, why aren't we doing this? Even in this two minutes when 
they don't get the normal reaction. They react with negative emotions, they turn away, they feel the stress of it, they actually may lose control of their posture because of the stress that they're experiencing. Okay, let's just be honest for a second. Anybody with young kids want to go home and try it? <laughs> like, I'll volunteer in the nursery next hour just to... No babies were harmed in the making of that film, I promise. Um... Okay, will you just lean in a little bit for a second? My conviction is that a lot of us think God is like the still-faced mom. And, and we act out of that. We act out of that feeling like, all right, if I don't, if I don't perform well, then I, I'm not loved. If I don't produce well, then I'm not loved. And, and what Jesus does in telling this parable, this story, is he completely reframes what God is like. God is not the stoic God in the sky, unmoved mover, as Plato suggested. No, no, he is the compassionate, affectionate father. That he, he runs to us when he sees us coming on the road. But he, here's the thing about the older son. He doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. He doesn't get that freedom is found in love. He thinks freedom is found in some other ways. And we're going to talk about those in just a second. But he views God like that still-faced mom, that he should respond to the younger brother, oh, you blew it. This son of yours, he blew all your money. And so here's what he forfeits. He forfeits the ability to believe that he's loved. And so the story ends. The party goes. and He's on the outside listening to the music. I love the way that Robert Farr Capone puts it. He says this. Here's the invitation this morning. That grace, he writes, is the celebration of life relentlessly hounding at all the non-celebrants in the world. It's a floating cosmic bash, shouting its way through the streets of the universe, flinging the sweetness of its cassations against every window, pounding at every door in a hilarity beyond all liking and happening until all of the prodigals come out at last and dance and the elder brothers finally take their fingers out of their ears. <laughs> That's awesome. I wish I wrote it, okay? So here's the invitation this morning. Take your fingers out of your ears. The water's warm. The waves are crashing. Jump in. Let's unpack what it looks like. Verse 25. There's three movements that happen in this section of the parable, and what we're going to look at is each movement and then its opposite that is actually the thing that leads us to freedom and love. It says in verse 25, now his older son was in the field. Notice where he's at. The, the, all of this has happened with his brother. That He's come home. The, the servants have gone to get the coat. They've gone to get the ring. Uh, they've killed the fattened calf already. He's on the grill. He's warming up. The, the music's starring the music. And where is he? in the field, right? He, he, he's, he is still, he's working. He's working. You know, he can't come in because there's stuff to get done. 
And as he came, he drew near to the house. He heard the music and the dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. It's an interesting indictment on the older son's relationship with his father that he calls not the father, but he calls one of the servants. He, he doesn't have the kind of relationship with his dad where he can say, Dad, what in the world is going on? What's the, what's the music? He calls someone who's working for he and his dad, hey, what's the deal? What's the deal? And here's what we start to see. That there's a lack of freedom and love because, man, he is close to his dad, the older son is, only in geography, only in geography. He's only close spatially, but he's not close in his heart. He's not close in a relationship. And here's the thing. We all know it is possible to be sitting across from somebody that you're having dinner with, that you're having a cup of coffee with, that you're having a conversation with, to be close in proximity, but to have miles between you relationally. Yeah? Yeah. And so here's what we see. He's, he's close to his father. He lives on his property, but he doesn't actually enjoy the relationship that he has with him. He, he's working. He, he's a... He's a hired hand, and he's got to get it done before he ever sets foot in the celebration. See, here's the truth of the matter, friends. You and I were designed for intimacy with God, not just proximity to him. Here's the way that Jesus says it. He says in the, in the high priestly prayer in John chapter 14, the, the apostle John recounts Jesus praying, and he prays, my prayer is that the glory you have given me that I'd give them that they would be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me. That's Jesus' prayer for, for us as his followers. Not that we would be within shouting distance of God, but that we would be in an intimate, close relationship with him. And here's the thing. Will you look up at me for a second? If you've been around church for a long time like I have, I think one of the greatest dangers for us is that we can be in close proximity to God, but be distant from Him relationally. We can be around the story all the time. We can be around the conversations all the time. But we don't know His heart. And we don't hear His voice. Here's two distinctives of people who are, who are intimate with God, who are close to God, not just spatially, but relationally. He says, uh, David writes in Psalm 73, verse 28, he says, but for me, it's good to be near God. He, he's talking about relationally. It's, it's good to be in relationship with God because I've made the Lord my refuge. So here's, here's the first test. If we're intimate with God, not just close, but intimate with God, when it feels like the bottom is falling out of life, he's the first place we turn. He, he's my refuge, David says. He's the place where when, when it feels like the sky is falling, that's where I go and that's where I crawl into and that's where I climb up. Here's the second thing we see though. And it's the words of Jesus and he recounts for us. He says this in John chapter 10, verse 27. He says, my sheep, they what? hear my voice. They, they hear my voice. Not just they hear people talking about what I say. 
but they hear me say it. See, a distinctive of somebody who's intimate with God, not just close in proximity, is they hear the overtures of love that flow from his heart. The invitation to come and, and to dance, to come and to swim, to come and to hear the music and get involved. They hear his voice. They hear his tender rebuke. They hear his loving kindness. They hear his invitation. Come in deeper. Come for more. There's more to be had here. And the key question we've got to wrestle with is, just like the younger or the older brother, are there things that we feel like we have to go to a mediator for in order to get to God? Or can we tell him anything? Can we ask him anything? Here's the thing. Maybe this morning it's just a step in this direction. All right, God, you design, I'm living in proximity, but you designed me for intimacy. There is no freedom from God where there is no intimacy with God. There's no freedom from God. You don't get freedom from God secondhand. There's no freedom from God where there is no intimacy with God. Look at the way this continues. So that's the first movement, is from proximity to intimacy. Second, verse 28. But he was angry. The younger, the older son was angry, and he refused to go in. If you have children, you've seen this happen only every single day, okay? I am not doing that. I am not going there. I mean, this is a full-on pouty meltdown, is what this is, okay? Uh Uh-uh. He isn't playing by the rules, There's no way I'm going to his party. If I went to his party, I'd be going along with what you're saying we do as a family, and that's not the way we operate. That's not the way we do things. One of my favorite stories of all time is is Les Miserables, uh, written by Victor Hugo a number of years ago. In the late 1800s, he released this book. And it's the story of grace and mercy. It's a story of a man named Jean Valjean who's imprisoned for 19 years for stealing a loaf of bread to feed his sister's seven kids. And when he's finally released, he goes and he steals again, but he steals from a bishop who um, meets him in his lowest spot and showers grace down on him. It's this grace that completely changes his life. It's the epitome of being found in love and free to live. But the police inspector, Javert, is unable to accept it. He can't take that grace has been offered because justice must be executed. And so the entire movie, the entire book revolves around this cat and mouse game. Will grace ruin out or will law win out? Will, will it be mercy or will it be justice? And eventually Valjean has the chance to take Javert's life and he lets him go. And Javert is haunted to the very core of his being that he has been showered with grace. He can't accept it. And he ends up taking his own life. It's this picture of pushback that you see. He's, he's angry. 
the older brother was, and he refused to go in. You know why he refuses to go in? Because there's only one way you enter. It's through death. That's the way you get into the party. Everybody there is dead. The, the father dies when he divides his bios, his life, his property. He dies again when he picks up his robe and he runs in humiliation towards his son to offer grace. The, the younger son dies when he comes to the end of himself and realizes, I've got to go home. It's my only hope. And well, the cow dies to be the centerpiece of the party. Everybody's there and they're dead and they're loving it. But it's the older brother who refuses to die. He's saying, no, 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 I'll get into the party, but I'll get in there with my good deeds, and I'll get in there with my accomplishments, and I'll get in there because, well, I'm perfect, look at me. The father says, no, 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 no. In order to get in, you've got to let go. I can remember when I was a youth pastor taking my youth group water skiing, and I wanted to show off. By that I mean I wanted to actually get up on a ski, okay? And I can remember trying so hard, being like, don't be an idiot, don't be a moron, right? And so I'm holding on, just white knuckling it, and the boat starts to go, and I start to get up, and then I just do that tilt over. If you've ever water skied, you know that, that slow tilt where you just go, this is not going well. And so I am roughly a foot under the water, and I am like, oh no, I am not letting go, right? And soon my legs pop out right behind me, right? And I'm just holding on. And my thought is, I refuse to let go. And then my second thought is, what do I expect to happen? Like I'm going to pop up on like bare feet and go, now you see me, right? It's not, wasn't happening. I think it's the father saying to his older son, let go. Maybe he's saying it to you today, let go. He's going, I've got to control it. If it's going to work out in my favor, I've got to control. The invitation, though, is to surrender. I love the way that Robert Capone once again says it. He says, grace works on the untouchable, the unpardonable, the unacceptable. It works, in short, by raising the dead, not by rewarding the living. See, as long as we try to control God by our goodness, which is what the older brother is trying to do, we will never be fully sure that he loves us. And let me say that again. As long as we try to control God by our goodness, we will never be sure that he loves us. And so anger, like it does for the older brother, will dominate our soul, We will process pain in life as though we believe that God is punishing us. And here's the thing. If you think God's punishing you and that's the reason you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, my guess is you have very little awareness that your good shepherd is with you in that valley. See, because you can either believe the punishment is coming from him or you can believe he's walking with you. But you can't believe both of those things, friends. 
And testimony of scripture is he's with you in that valley. Here's the other thing. If we believe that our goodness is the way that we come into relationship and or are rewarded by God, criticism from others will devastate us. Because they're questioning the very ground that we believe that we stand on. We'll feel inconsolable guilt when we do something wrong. Because that's the way we step into love and we know we need love in order to live in freedom. Everybody knows that. The question is, how are we trying to get it? Control? Here's, here's the, God, here's the hoops I'm jumping through. Will you turn off the still face and start engaging with me? God, here's all the things I've done for you. Can, can, can we have a relationship now? And God says, oh, no, 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 you, you don't get it. You don't come through your good deeds. You come through my sacrifice, and you only receive my sacrifice when you die. To quote the Apostle Paul, your life is now hidden with Christ in God, and when Christ who is your life appears, you will appear with him also. And one of the greatest inhibitors to freedom is the need to control because when we say we've got to control, we cannot surrender to God's grace. I love the way that our worship pastor, Aaron Bjorklund, said it. <laughs> In our writing team meeting, here's what he said. He said, hitching your wagon to grace is a wild ride. <laughs> it is. It is. And here's the thing. You don't get to control where it goes. And that's the hardest thing for older brothers. Any other older brothers want to say, amen? Because the anthem is of surrender is, I am at the beautiful, mysterious, abundant, breathtaking mercy of God. That's all that I have, and I'm alive because of it. Here's the way that the parable ends. Verse 29. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've, I've served you. Um, the Greek word, the root word is, is doulos, which is a bond servant or a slave. All these years I've, I've slaved for you. I never disobeyed your command. Notice, he's just putting forth, I've served you, I've been good, I've done everything right. All of the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, notice, have you ever disliked somebody so much? I know we're all, we follow the way of Jesus, so you're going to say no, but some of you have. Have you ever disliked somebody so much it was hard to say their name? Has somebody ever hurt you so bad that it was hard to say their name? That, that's what's going on here. Um, this son of yours, I'm not going to call him by name, and I'm not even going to admit that he is my brother, your son. When he came, he's devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. It's interesting, this word served, as we said, is doulos, and there's a number of times in the scriptures where Paul will say, I'm a bondservant of Christ. And so, if this is to be taken negatively, why so? Oh, here's what Paul will say in the book of Romans chapter 7. 
He says, but we're released from the law, having died. <laughs> this is the, how do we enter? By death. That we held, which held us captive so that we serve. We, we do loss. We are servants, bond servants or slaves. In the new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. What's he saying? There's been a transition in his life, in Paul's life, from duty-driven obedience to delight-driven obedience. And there are miles between the two. The more I interact with people, the more I'm convinced that most followers of Jesus they fall into the category of duty. And here's the word that epitomizes the life of duty. We should do this. We should do that. As if to say, we don't really want to, but we should. I have a friend who said to me, I I mentioned the word should. He said, don't should on me. I'm like, that's awesome. I love that. Don't should on me. Right, right. That's That's the anthem of delight. It's not that we should do these things because we're held captive by the law, and if we don't, we get still face God. No, it's the invitation to come and to take his yoke upon you because his burden is light. That's the invitation of the gospel. See, the life that is controlled by duty, you can see it, it's right here, believes two things. First, the older brother says to him, I never disobeyed your command. I've done this. Look at my record. Look at all the things I've produced for you, God. Look, Look at all the things I've done. And then, if you would, step back from my body of work and look at him. See, here's what duty-driven people are under the weight of comparison. I've done this, they've done that. I've produced this, they've produced that. And the only thing that does is it stirs up pride It causes us to dehumanize people like you see in this parable. This son of yours, he can't even mention his name because he's competing with him. And if you're operating on duty, you cannot find yourself in the place of love. As Tim Keller, I think, poignantly states, he says, it is impossible to forgive somebody if you feel superior to him or to her. And then we become judgmental. If you're taking notes, just write down Matthew chapter 20. In that chapter, Jesus tells a parable of workers in a vineyard. And he tells a parable of a vineyard owner who hires people to come into work. And he hires some at the beginning of the day and some at the end of the day. And he decides he wants to pay them all the same. And the people who begin working at the top of the hour are so distraught because they got paid the same as somebody who came in at the very last second. And Jesus responds to their pushback by saying, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my way of what? Generosity. Oh, man. You know, I think we start to understand the goodness of the gospel when we think in the back of our minds, it can't be this good. It can't be this good. 
Here's the other thing he believes, and then we'll land the plane. He believes that he lives in a world of scarcity. See, duty leads us not only to comparison, but it leads us to scarcity. Where's all my stuff? You've never given me anything. Not even a goat to celebrate with my friends. And the father's response is brilliant. He looks at him and goes, what in the world are you talking about? Just look around. All of this is yours. All of it. And if we operate based on duty, we take on ourselves a posture of, of bond servant, of day laborer, and we are unable to enjoy the reality that everything that's God, God's, is ours in him. And see, here's the beautiful thing. It's that walking with Jesus, it satisfies the deepest places of our soul. Listen to the way the Father says it. He says to him, son, which, which in the Greek is this word technon, and it's not the word for son he's used throughout the entire rest of the parable. It's new and introduced here, and it means son, not just by blood, but son by affection and son by love. He's entreating him again. He doesn't want him to miss swimming in the ocean. He doesn't want him to miss coming into the party, he's going, son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. And so, here's this pathway to love and freedom. It's a movement from proximity to intimacy. It's a movement of feeling like we have to control everything to resting in the grace of God. And it's a movement from believing that God has things for us to accomplish because he's sort of the the slave master and we're under his control as opposed to, no, 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 this is disciplined delight. Every command that comes from God, lean in for a second, will you? Every command that comes from God is ultimately for your joy. Every one of them. When Rembrandt painted this masterful picture, he pictured the younger brother in the back, in the shadows, looking on. And it's as though Rembrandt echoes the question Jesus ends his parable with. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You're going to just walk along the beach and go, I really should jump in. Are you going to hear the music and go, yeah, but I don't deserve to be in there. Or yeah, but that's for other people. That's not for me. Or, Or yeah, but they don't deserve to be in there, so I'm not going in. Or, or. Will we respond to the embrace of God our Father? Respond to his love and come into his party. The embrace of love is the ultimate emancipation. And friends, the story ends. The story of scripture ends with another feast. You can read about it in Revelation 19. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb, where he is celebrated and we are 
loved. And not only is love our greatest freedom, but it is our eternal destiny. And I pray, I pray, I pray that you and I would not push back against his grace and his love, but would firmly plant our lives in it and upon it. Because it's those arms that do not confine, but they actually free us to live. If you don't know the King Jesus this morning, my hope and prayer is that your heart would be stirred to surrender to his love. That you just lay your, down, your life down and say, God, I'm in. So Lord, we come this morning and we worship. We come this morning believing that when we're found in your love, we're free to live in your world. And so we believe that we're no longer slaves to fear, but that we're children of God. That we're founded and grounded in the cross, in the blood that you shed, in the love that you displayed, in the welcome that you've given, in your running, in humiliation to meet us along the road, in the forgiveness that you've lavished on us, in the acceptance that you've given us, in the love that you've grounded us in. May we live in that freedom, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.